October 5, 1986, a CIA operative named Felix Rodriguez discovered that one of his cargo planes had failed to return from Nicaragua. It was loaded with 10,000 pounds of ammunition intended for a right-wing rebel group called the Contras. Fearing that the cargo had never made it to the militia, a panicked Rodriguez phoned the White House. He asked for Donald Gregg, the national security advisor for then-Vice President George H.W. Bush. Gregg's deputy, Samuel Watson, picked up instead, and Rodriguez explained what had happened. Minutes later, Watson rushed to relay the information to the National Security Council. The following morning, Rodriguez learned that the Nicaraguan government had shot his plane out of the sky, killing the pilot and co-pilot. Then they'd captured the sole survivor, Eugene Hassenfuss. Worst of all, Hassenfuss's recognition of the operation was shared with the press. He claimed that the CIA had helped deploy supplies to the Contras, even though Congress had forbidden U.S. agencies from doing so. He told reporters that he worked for Max Gomez, a name the press identified as an alias for Rodriguez. And just like that, the CIA's top secret program to support the Nicaraguan rebels was public. Immediately, Washington officials disavowed Rodriguez. Countless members of the Reagan administration announced that they knew nothing about the mission. But someone had to have authorized it. Otherwise, why did Rodriguez telephone the White House and not the CIA or the Department of Defense? This raised the question, did the conspiracy stretch all the way into the Oval Office? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the Iran-Contra affair, a political scandal that U.S. President Ronald Reagan supposedly carried out in the 1980s. The story goes that Reagan and his administration secretly facilitated an arms exchange with Iran, Then they redirected the profits to help the right-wing Contras in Nicaragua. Last episode, we discussed the official story. When Congress blocked funding to the rebel Contra army, the Reagan administration secretly diverted profits from an Iranian arms exchange. The covert operation culminated in a series of congressional testimonies and the indictment of several Reagan officials. But all the culprits managed to escape major consequences and convictions. This week, we'll explore some of the biggest conspiracy theories surrounding the affair. We'll investigate whether the Republican Party covered up President Reagan's involvement, 
then we'll scrutinize claims that Vice President George H.W. Bush wasn't as innocent as he let on. Finally, we'll look at suggestions that the CIA's activities in Nicaragua helped ignite the crack epidemic in America. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. In 1985 and 1986, officials under President Ronald Reagan secretly sold weapons to Iran. Then they diverted the profits to support a right-wing Nicaraguan militia called the Contras. When the so-called Iran-Contra affair became public news, it rocked Washington, D.C. Several investigations ensued, but nobody found any hard evidence that President Reagan knew of the operation. However, doubts about his involvement still linger today. Some even think that he benefited from a cover-up. That takes us to conspiracy theory number one. Republican officials helped Reagan avoid implication and impeachment. Almost from the beginning, conservative congressmen and cabinet members scrambled to emphasize that Reagan was innocent. On November 18, 1987, Congress released their report on the Iran-Contra hearings. Although they didn't implicate Reagan, they condemned several members of his administration. They characterized the White House as rife with, quote, secrecy, deception, and disdain for the law. That same day, Representative and future Vice President Dick Cheney denounced their findings. He and other Republicans proclaimed that Congress's investigation was nothing more than partisan politics. He characterized the entire scandal as a witch hunt. Though Cheney admitted that the Reagan administration had made mistakes, he blamed Congress for forcing the president's hand. According to Cheney, 
Reagan's officials had made the right call in violating an unfair and unpatriotic law. On top of that, Cheney and other Republican congressmen insisted that the president had the constitutional authority to ignore the Boland Amendment. Cheney and his colleagues cited the unitary executive theory, a principle that essentially suggests the U.S. government can't function properly if different branches work against one another. It's sort of the opposite of checks and balances. The unitary executive theory says that the president can override any limits Congress imposes in relation to executive powers. Otherwise, no leader would ever get anything done. This is especially true when the country faces an immediate threat that demands an urgent response. According to Cheney, the Soviet menace in Nicaragua was big enough that Reagan had to act, regardless of what the law said. Given his arguments, it sounds like the scandal boiled down to a debate about presidential authority. Did Reagan have the right to ignore federal restrictions? Was the Iran-Contra affair justified? However, the actions of Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North changed the conversation. Due to his behavior, the Iran-Contra affair was no longer a question of presidential authority. Instead, the case moved to the realm of conspiracy. And it all began with shredded documents. To recap, the Iran-Contra affair became public knowledge in October 1986. One month later, in November, Oliver North and his secretary, Fawn Hall, began shredding documents about the arms trade and funds diversion. On November 25th, North was fired. By this point, his involvement in the scandal was public knowledge. He had nothing more to hide, but he continued to destroy evidence. Hall still worked in his old office, and on North's orders, she stuffed confidential folders into her skirt and boots in order to smuggle them to her former boss. It's impossible to say what that paperwork said because North and Hall effectively destroyed the information. But most historians believe the evidence implicated North. He'd already lost his job, but he hadn't gone to trial yet. So it makes sense that he'd want to get rid of anything incriminating. That's possible. But North's trial testimony later on suggested he wasn't interested in protecting himself. He wanted to cover for the president. During their congressional hearings, North and National Security Advisor John Poindexter, who was forced to resign as the scandal broke, mentioned that they'd never notified Reagan about the Iran-Contra operations. This behavior offered up a paradox. Was North cynical enough to destroy evidence to protect himself, and yet selfless enough to ensure that no one thought the president was involved? It didn't make sense. If North was self-serving, why was he bending over backwards to absolve the president? Unless he was selfless and the evidence he destroyed implicated Reagan, making North the fall guy. Not that he took much of a fall. 
North was found guilty and received a sentence of a three-year suspended prison term and two years of probation, plus fines and community service. But he filed an appeal and managed to vacate his conviction. In other words, by 1990, North's record was clean. In fact, most conspirators' convictions were overturned. Only a handful of months after the investigation and conviction, North was celebrated as a right-wing hero and Poindexter remained in government and took defense contract work. Hardly the outcome I'd expect for two officials who went rogue and broke federal law without any kind of approval. But that doesn't mean there was a conspiracy at play. The lenient sentence might have just been a PR move. President Reagan was well-liked. Even after the Iran-Contra affair broke, many Americans unquestionably supported his presidency. If lawmakers were too aggressive in prosecuting the crimes, they'd draw backlash. So it makes sense that they let the conspirators go with a slap on the wrist. But Congress did try to gather evidence that they could have used in an impeachment. In 1987, Reagan delivered congressional testimony and repeatedly insisted that he couldn't recall any details regarding the Iran-Contra operations. Sounds like a pretty blatant lie to me, but Congress didn't push him further. Maybe he wasn't lying, though. Reagan's forgetfulness may have been an early sign of Alzheimer's disease, a diagnosis he would announce publicly in 1994. But even then, Reagan's ignorance wouldn't necessarily mean he was innocent. And a few times, he actively obstructed investigations. In 1990, a federal judge ordered Reagan to provide excerpts from his diary. They had reason to believe that those entries revealed that Reagan had authorized the Contra Fund's diversion. It's hard to say for sure, though, because Reagan refused to provide the pages, citing executive privilege. In simple terms, executive privilege means that high-ranking executive branch officials can choose not to disclose confidential information, even if a court demands it. This might be done for national security purposes or in order to protect certain internal White House deliberations. For example, the president might know the names of undercover spies, and if they reveal those identities, it would endanger the secret agents and maybe the entire operation. So the leader can decline to provide the information without being charged with obstruction of justice. We should note that the Constitution doesn't actually grant the president the power of executive privilege. It's more of a tradition than a codified law. And it's hard to imagine what national security issue Reagan would have been protecting when he refused to hand over his diary. After all, the judge didn't ask for the entire journal, just selected excerpts that related to the Iran-Contra affair. I'll admit, it's possible that Reagan was just protecting himself. That said, there's one big problem with the theory that his party helped him execute a cover-up. There's no motive. I could buy that Reagan's friends and colleagues would want to protect him. I can even accept that the Republicans in Congress would want to avoid the embarrassment of an impeachment hearing. But once prosecutors brought criminal charges against the conspirators, you'd think someone would crack. 
it's hard to accept that anyone would go to prison over party politics. Sure, but most of the convicted officials didn't spend much time in prison. Bush pardoned several individuals after he succeeded Reagan as president. I could see someone agreeing to take the blame if they knew they'd go free either way. That's fair. But the first conviction came in April 1987, when Carl Chanel pled guilty to a felony conspiracy charge. Several other plaintiffs faced indictments throughout 1987 and 1988, before Bush won the election. They had no way of knowing that a Republican would become president or have the power to pardon them. And that leads us to another big problem. The Iran-Contra affair became public knowledge during the lead-up to an election year. President Reagan was wrapping up his second term. It doesn't make sense for lawmakers to protect a president who was on his way out, especially when their behavior could hurt the GOP's reputation or threaten Bush's chances of getting into office. On the other hand, maybe the election cycle inspired Congress to protect Reagan. It's hard to admit the current president is corrupt while insisting that his vice president is blameless and deserves four more years in office. So maybe the crux of this theory isn't that Congress wanted to protect Reagan, but that they wanted to secure Bush's chances at the presidency. Whatever their motive, Reagan got off scot-free. He could thank a lack of crucial documentation, a slew of stalwart supporters, and a deteriorating memory. And it's undeniable that his colleagues helped make it as hard as possible for Congress to impeach him. On a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 means the conspiracy is probably true, and 1 means it's totally unbelievable, I'm giving conspiracy theory number 1 a 6. It's clear that Republicans closed rank to protect the president, but I'm not sure there was anything more than party politics at play. I'd rate it slightly higher at an 8. I'm very suspicious of North's decision to shred documents even after he was fired. It seems like Reagan's administration buried and destroyed evidence that directly implicated the president. And maybe, while they were at it, they protected another official, Vice President George H.W. Bush. In fact, he may have been a major player in the affair. Next, we'll explore Vice President Bush's possible involvement in the Iran-Contra operations. Parcasters, we're entering the spookiest season of the year. And while I can't wait for candy corn to hit the grocery store shelves, I'm also looking forward to more frightful parts of fall, starting with Parcast Network's newest original series called Haunted Places Ghost Stories. Starting October 1st, we're bringing you the scariest, most hair-raising ghost stories ever imagined. Every Thursday on Haunted Places Ghost Stories, Alastair Murden summons a new spine-tingling tale of wraiths, phantoms, and chilling apparitions. These stories come from all over the world, including Japan, India, the UK, and even ancient Rome. Don't miss stone-cold classics like The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood a sinister account of a condemned murderer's final wish, and the lengths he'd go to fulfill it. 
and the Miserere, a Spanish tale of a wandering musician who hears a terrifyingly beautiful song in a burned-out monastery and is doomed to capture its notes until he dies. You can find and follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, October is our favorite month and one of our busiest. So make sure to search Parcast Network in the Spotify search bar to see all of our new shows. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. The Iran-Contra affair became public knowledge in 1986. But even after numerous investigations, multiple congressional hearings, and countless criminal trials, President Ronald Reagan emerged unscathed. Likewise, his vice president, George H.W. Bush, managed to avoid conviction. In fact, his public approval was so high, he won a presidential run two years later in 1988. Officially, he escaped the fallout because he had nothing to do with the Iran-Contra affair, but maybe he knew more than he let on. That leads us to conspiracy theory number two. Bush knew about the Iran-Contra operation and even helped orchestrate it. According to a memo that was signed and approved by Ronald Reagan, Bush flew to Honduras in March 1985. There, he met with President Roberto Suazo Cordova. At the time, the Contra army was camped in the country's southern region. Allegedly, they were a major topic of discussion during Bush and Cordova's meeting. Bush supposedly told Suazo that the U.S. would provide him more aid, so long as Honduras protected the Contras. It's not clear how much money Bush promised him, if he promised any at all, but it would have been a lot, because President Reagan himself had apparently approved the transaction. That memo came to light during Oliver North's trial in 1989. Bush, who was president at the time, categorically denied everything, and U.S. Ambassador John Negroponte seconded Bush's assertion. He'd attended the meeting with Suazo and confirmed that no such deal was discussed. But that memo isn't the only piece of evidence that implicated Bush. In early 1986, the VP met with the new president of Honduras, Jose Ascona Hoyo. As for what they discussed, that's up for debate. 
According to a document titled Special Talking Points Ascona, Reagan dispatched Bush to negotiate the Contra deal with the Honduran leader. Following the president's instructions, Bush promised to help secretly move guns to the Contras, assuring Ascona that it could, quote, be done with deniability. That's pretty compelling. But it only covers one piece of the story. Bush later conceded that he'd received the memo, but he didn't remember the specific talking points Reagan fed him. Nor did he remember discussing arms sales with Ascona. He agreed that the conversation could have happened, but even that didn't prove that Bush knew about the Iran-Contra exchange. As he later explained to officials, quote, I don't think I should be prohibited from telling a guy that I'd like to see him help somebody else. I'm not sure I buy that he was just making conversation and stumbled onto an allusion to the conspiracy. For one thing, Bush had a lot of associates who were mired in the affair. In the mid-1980s, a CIA operative named Felix Rodriguez oversaw much of the operation to provide military aid to the Contras. Interestingly, Bush knew Rodriguez and described him as a patriot. However, Bush said he didn't know about the CIA agent's contramission. In fact, his national security advisor, Donald Gregg, said that he was Rodriguez's point of contact. And Gregg allegedly shielded the vice president from any knowledge of the illegal operation. So he couldn't possibly know what was going on. But Bush apparently understood the details of Iran-Contra on November 27, 1985, nearly a year before it became public knowledge. That day, he sent Oliver North a handwritten note expressing gratitude for his dedication to, quote, the hostage thing and with Central America, unquote. Plus, he regularly attended administration meetings regarding the Contras from 1984 until 1986. In August 1986, Oliver North's Contra operation team complained that Rodriguez was combative and difficult to work with. According to his personal notes, North immediately set an appointment, quote, with VP, unquote. But that meeting could have been about anything. And even if North and Bush did discuss Rodriguez's behavior, that doesn't mean North disclosed all the details of Rodriguez's mission. That's the thing about the allegations about Bush's involvement. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but no smoking gun that proves he knew what was going on. That hasn't stopped the press from trying to uncover the truth. During Bush's presidential campaign in 1988, the Washington Post gave his advisors 30 questions about his involvement in the Iran-Contra scandal. After several weeks of prodding, Bush declined to provide any answers. This runs counter to Bush's statements after his win that year, where he emphasized that he'd answered all the reporters' questions related to the Iran-Contra affair. I can't blame him for fudging the truth, though. That's just part of running a campaign. You evade difficult questions and spin your responses in the most positive light possible. Perhaps, but investigators weren't so willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. 
In January of 1988, independent prosecutor Lawrence Walsh and his team questioned Bush for two hours. Under oath, Bush claimed that he couldn't recall anything about Iranian arms sales or the Contras. That's a pretty convenient bout of forgetfulness. To get to the bottom of the issue, Walsh submitted several requests for Bush's diaries and personal records. The president and his counsel confirmed that they received Walsh's requests, but they refused to hand over the papers. Because Bush was soon the leader of the free world, Walsh decided not to subpoena him. But that didn't stop the prosecutor from pursuing another Reagan official. In June 1992, the former Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger, was indicted for his involvement in the Iran-Contra affair. During the investigation, prosecutors found that one of Weinberger's diaries referenced Bush's involvement in the secret Iran arms exchange. But before Weinberger could stand trial, Bush pardoned him on Christmas Eve 1992 along with five other Reagan administration officials. Of course, Walsh was incensed. He believed the president had exonerated Weinberger to protect himself. If Weinberger never took the stand, he'd never implicate Bush. The president even acknowledged that his pardons might be interpreted as suspicious, but he stood his ground, contending that Walsh's investigation was a criminalization of policy differences. That argument is interesting. It sounds like Bush was saying he did know about the affair, but thought his behavior was justified. It's similar to the arguments that Congressman Dick Cheney offered to defend President Reagan. And like Reagan, it's impossible to pin down exactly how involved Bush was. He seemed to have a lot of connections to guilty people, like CIA agent Felix Rodriguez and Vice Presidential National Security Advisor Donald Gregg. It's like they say about laying down with dogs. But we can't assume that Bush was guilty by association. After all, he knew Gregg long before he became vice president, that friendship was born in 1976, when Bush served as director of the CIA. That's right. The former president served as the CIA director for one year, from January 1976 to January 1977. That's where he met Greg, who was an operations manager for the agency at the time. And when Bush took office alongside Reagan, he appointed his former co-worker, Greg, as his national security advisor. Greg, it turns out, had also been a close acquaintance of Felix Rodriguez since they fought together during the Vietnam War. With that in mind, I don't find it that hard to imagine that Rodriguez and Greg continued to conspire right under Bush's nose since they were all part of the same professional network. Who knows? Maybe the Iran-Contra affair really was a rogue CIA plot. Maybe, but that still wouldn't absolve Bush from blame. He should have kept a tighter rein on his staffers, especially if they'd reported to him in the past. The former CIA director should have known to read between the lines and recognize when he was being lied to. 
Plus, that theory can't account for all the memos and letters that suggest Bush knew exactly what was going on. Bush's alleged lack of knowledge on the Iran-Contra operation does seem to run counter to the evidence. Plus, I find it hard to believe he could work so closely with Rodriguez and Greg and not know the details of their mission. For that reason, I'm giving conspiracy theory number two a nine out of 10. I'd rate it about the same. Even while Bush insisted on his innocence, he withheld personal records, refused to answer direct questions about his participation, and lied about being in key meetings with the Reagan administration. Sounds like he had something to hide. And I wouldn't blame him. The Iran-Contra affair was shocking because of the perpetrator's disregard for federal policies. Countless Nicaraguans died due to the arms trades. And that's before we get into the possible American death toll. According to a controversial expose, the Iran-Contra affair may have been a root cause for the 1980s crack epidemic. Next, we'll examine whether the CIA sold cocaine in Los Angeles. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Now, back to the story. After the Iran-Contra affair became public knowledge in 1986, Vice President George H.W. Bush declared that he had no major role in the operation. However, he pardoned six Reagan officials who'd been involved in the scandal. It was a politically risky move. But even though questions still loomed, it seemed the Iran-Contra affair would end there. That is, until 1996. Four years after the pardons, the scandal resurfaced through a bombshell investigation. Gary Webb, a reporter from the San Jose Mercury News, published a 20,000-word expose that revealed a stunning series of allegations. Webb's articles, dubbed Dark Alliance, linked Nicaraguan cocaine trades, the Contra rebels, and an epidemic that devastated black communities in California. According to Webb, the Contras helped traffic cocaine to the U.S. to fund their military operation against Nicaragua's left-wing government. He wrote that they opened a direct pipeline between Colombia's drug cartels and black neighborhoods in south-central Los Angeles. 
And if Webb is to be believed, the Contras helped trigger the United States crack epidemic. Crack is powdered cocaine that has been cut with baking soda. It's cheaper than straight cocaine and can be smoked for an immediate but short-lived high. As soon as it hit the market in 1981, countless Americans got hooked. Unfortunately, the drug crisis exacerbated racial inequalities in the United States. Crack was more popular in black communities, while white people generally preferred cocaine. And after a spike in overdoses and deaths, the federal government imposed harsh criminal penalties for crack use and possession. Generally, the sentences for crack-related offenses were 100 times harsher than equivalent cocaine violations. Which means the influx of crack stoked racial tensions, drove predominantly black users into overcrowded prisons, and killed thousands through overdoses and drug-related crime. The drug epidemic was a disaster, and Webb laid the blame at the feet of the CIA. This wasn't the first time someone had linked the Contras and the CIA to narcotic smuggling. In 1985, Two Associated Press journalists found that Contra groups had sold cocaine to finance their rebellion. According to National Security Archive senior analyst Peter Kornblue, the Reagan White House launched a secret campaign to discredit the story. Unfortunately, we don't know more details, as Kornblue doesn't specify any further. Despite the attempted cover-up, Senator John Kerry launched a special Senate committee to investigate the AP's findings in 1986. Three years later, in 1989, Kerry's committee released their report, saying they'd found substantial evidence that the Contras were linked to drug and gun running, and that the U.S. government had known about it the whole time. Strangely, major newspaper outlets barely paid attention to Kerry's damning assessment. The New York Times, which only wrote 850 words on the report, had long denigrated the allegations about Contra drug trafficking. Newsweek dubbed Kerry a conspiracy buff. But Webb's Dark Alliance series was different. His seemingly in-depth investigation contained critical anecdotes from primary sources linked to the Contra drug trafficking. Two Nicaraguans named Oscar Danilo Blandon Reyes and Meneses Contarero had illegally imported drugs into the U.S. They'd ferried them to a renowned L.A. drug dealer named Ricky Freeway Ross. Webb asserted that they developed an alliance with the Contras, and the CIA knew about their relationship. He believed American law enforcement agencies had even decided not to prosecute the dealers because of these connections. That seems unlikely, though, because in 1992, Reyes was convicted and served about 21 months for drug trafficking. True, but during his trial, he testified that he sent drug funds to the Contras, which seems to verify Webb's allegations. Assuming we can take Reyes at his word, but there were a lot of inconsistencies and contradictions between his and Webb's stories. 
First of all, Webb focused on the drug trade in Los Angeles, but the Washington Post argued that the crack epidemic was a major problem throughout the entire country. There was no evidence that L.A. was any worse than anywhere else in the U.S. If the CIA was funneling addictive substances to the City of Angels, you'd expect to see a spike in overdoses or deaths there. And that leads us to a bigger issue. Webb never provided any evidence that the CIA had anything to do with crack smuggling. He described the Contras as the CIA's army and talked about their involvement in the drug trade. So the implication was there, but he didn't prove the agency was an actual player in the crack pipeline. On the other hand, the Los Angeles Times found that Reyes and Contarero had given money to the Contras, which seems to confirm Webb's theory. Sure, but Webb claimed that they sent millions of dollars to Nicaragua. It was later determined that the amount was far lower. Reyes only made $40,000 total in 1981 and 1982, so it's not like he had that kind of cash to funnel to the Contras. So it sounds like Webb might have gotten some facts wrong. If his numbers were incorrect, he may also have been mistaken about the CIA's involvement, too. There were enough questions about Webb's claims that the Justice Department investigated the CIA's connection to the cocaine trade. In 1998, they released their findings. They concluded that cracks sold in the United States did enrich the Contras, but they couldn't find any evidence of CIA involvement. The Justice Department also didn't believe that the three dealers Webb identified were responsible for the crack epidemic in South L.A., least of all the rise in cocaine use in the United States. These conclusions triggered a massive backlash against Webb. Competing newspapers piled on, publishing articles and op-eds that poked holes in his allegations. The Los Angeles Times put together a team of 17 reporters with one goal, to analyze and refute Webb's story. The continual criticism took its toll. Eventually, Webb left his job and journalism altogether. Eight years after Dark Alliance went to print, he died by suicide. In fairness, many of Webb's friends and loved ones said that he had depression even before his expose came out. But it seems likely that the stress of the public criticism didn't help his mental health. And that criticism was largely unwarranted. In 1998, the National Security Archive posted declassified documents concerning Webb's reporting. The papers include handwritten notes from National Security Council staffer Oliver North. Considering North's connections to the CIA, this makes things a little more sticky. Especially once you realize that they were involved in the campaign to discredit Webb. In 2014, the agency released previously classified documents spanning three decades of secret operations. The files included an article titled, Managing a Nightmare which remarked that the CIA had actively collaborated with some media outlets to undermine Webb. 
A CIA staffer named Nicholas Dumovich detailed how the agency discouraged one major news affiliate from covering Webb's story. A reporter asked them about their association with a key individual. Generally, Central Intelligence doesn't comment on anyone's ties to the agency. But this time around, they denied any connection. That may not sound like much, but it means the CIA disregarded their own policies specifically to discredit Webb. There are countless similar examples. In some cases, CIA agents fed what they called, quote, more balanced stories to journalists who then printed it as fact. Together, the agency and the press attributed wild conspiracy theories and extremist views to Webb. In the process, they made him look unreliable. Perhaps, but the actual flaws in Webb's articles are still pretty glaring. For example, Webb quoted Reyes saying that the CIA only needed drug money up until 1981. After that point, they would get funding from other sources, such as the Iran arms trade. But later in the article, Webb contradicted that assertion, saying that the Contra crack trade persisted throughout the 1980s. The timelines are inconsistent, and there's still no hard evidence linking the CIA to the drug deals. On the other hand, the agency was part of a disinformation campaign to discredit Webb, which suggests his allegations were a threat to them. Maybe that means there was a grain of truth there. But the claims Webb made were pretty alarming, whether they were true or not. I don't agree with the tactics, but I could see the agency working to discredit a false report that makes them look bad. And overall, the idea that the CIA helped funnel crack cocaine into the United States is totally unsubstantiated. I'm going to give conspiracy theory number three a three out of 10. I'd rate it slightly higher at a five. I just can't imagine why Los Angeles-based drug dealers would donate their profits to a distant Nicaraguan rebel group. Someone had to be facilitating that relationship. You raise a good point, even if I'm still not convinced. And that's the thing about the Iran-Contra affair. There are so many unanswered questions and mysterious details. It's almost impossible to know where the truth lies. Of all our theories, though, I'm most convinced by conspiracy theory number two. Vice President Bush was involved in the scandal. There's just too much written evidence that suggests he knew what was going on. Plus, he pardoned the administration officials who were found guilty during the scandal. Beyond the individual theories, one of the most interesting things about the Iran-Contra affair is how it failed to tarnish Reagan and Bush's presidencies. And given how extensive the scandal was, it's weird that it seems to have been completely forgotten today. You don't hear people discussing the arms trade or funds diversions, and it's not generally taught in schools. That silence says something about the American news cycle. You don't need to orchestrate the perfect cover-up to get away with a massive illegal conspiracy. You just need to ride out your five minutes of infamy 
and wait for the world to move on to the next scandal. And when it comes to politics, there will always be a next scandal. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Sam Rosenberg, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Don't forget to follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories for the spookiest thrillers ever imagined, collected from all around the world and all throughout time. Alastair Murden brings a new story to life every Thursday. Follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>